Good morning, Embassy Church. Um, it's good to see all of you again this morning. Please turn with me to the book of Jonah. It's on page 727 in your Black Pew Bibles there. 727. I said the book of Jonah, and some of you are probably thinking, Jonah? I thought we were in the Psalms. Are we starting the book of Jonah? We are actually ending the book of Jonah. We took a month and a half long break, so for those who know that, I thank you for your patience, but we're now in the fourth and final chapter of the book of Jonah, right? The final episode. But I think we need a recap. I think we need a recap. So previously in the book of Jonah, chapter one introduces a mission and the mission is a crucial part of the plot line. God's word came to his prophet Jonah and commands him to arise, go and call out against Nineveh. Instead of doing that, prophet Jonah flees from God and ends up getting swallowed by a great fish in chapter two. Uh, Jonah prays to God and the fish vomits him out. In chapter three, God repeats his mission to, to, to Jonah, and Jonah finally obeys God. Jonah goes to Nineveh, proclaims a prophecy. The entire city of Nineveh repents of their sins. God accepts their repentance of their sins, and he relents. God shows them compassion by not destroying Nineveh. If chapter 3 had ended the Jonah story, the story would have ended with God accomplishing his mission through his prophet Jonah. The ending is a happy ending. There's a, there's a sense of completeness there. It would be the Jonah trilogy, episodes one, two, and three. So why are we listening to another message on the book of Jonah? Because there's a chapter four. There's a chapter four, there's another episode to the story, if the story had ended with chapter three, there would, have been a, there would have been a lot of ifs. There would have been left with a lot of ifs. There are so many things in the first three chapters that uh, the, the first three, uh, there's so many things that the three chapters imply that are never explicitly stated until chapter four. The hints are finally revealed in Jonah chapter four. We wondered why Jonah fled from God this whole time in chapter one. We find out why in chapter four. Some of us thought Jonah had a heart change in his prayer in chapter two. We see Jonah's true heart in chapter four. It seemed like Jonah wanted to die in chapters one and two. We find out the truth in chapter four. You know, we speculated throughout the story how Jonah felt, right, uh, his emotions. We see his emotions clearly without ambiguity in chapter four. In chapters one, two, and three, we saw numerous indications of God's grace and mercy, but the, the author never explicitly uses those exact words, and we finally see those words in chapter four. We assume, we assume God and Jonah are talking to each other throughout the story, but we never see them have an actual conversation. Chapter one, God talks to no, uh, Jonah. Jonah doesn't talk to God. Chapter two, Jonah talks to God. God doesn't talk to Jonah. Chapter three, God talks to Jonah. Jonah doesn't talk to God. You would think they're playing phone tag. And we finally witness the two main characters in the story. The only characters in the story with names have a conversation in chapter four. 
in this final episode of this four-part series. It's not a trilogy, it's a tetralogy. So please follow along as I read the final chapter of a book about a gracious, merciful God and his prophet named Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Last verse, verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. I have a big idea this morning. Big idea. It's one statement, and here it is. When we anger over God's lack of divine justice, God teaches us about his divine compassion. When we anger over God's lack of divine justice, he, God, teaches us about his divine compassion. So uh, as we work through the text, we're going to focus on three things this morning. We're going to work through the text verse by verse, but we're going to focus on three things. First, we're going to focus on God's anger toward God. Uh, It's anger toward, more specifically, to his grace and mercy. That's verses one through four. Then we're going to focus on God's lesson for Jonah. God uses this as a teaching moment. Um, to teach Jonah about his own compassion. That's verses 5 through 11. And then lastly, we're going to focus on God's lesson for us, and I'm going to sprinkle that across the message as well. So, uh, Jonah's anger toward God, 1 through 4, God's lesson for Jonah, 5 through 11, and then God's lesson for us. Okay? We see Jonah's anger toward God immediately in the first verse. I'll read it again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Some of you are thinking, what just happened? What's going on? Why is Jonah so mad? What's the it? Why is is he so displeased? He's displeased exceedingly. 
This verse immediately connects us to what just happened at the end of chapter 3. And you really see the connection through one Hebrew word, which can be translated either evil or disaster. Same word. So I'll read to you the last uh, verse in chapter 3. It's verse 10. It reads, When God saw what they did, they referring to the Ninevites, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So those words, evil and disaster, have the same root word. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV, and the ESV captures the English, English well by drawing that distinction between the two English words, but it's really the same word, right? So it depends on the context. So how does this relate to the first verse we just read? A more literal translation of chapter 4, verse 1 is, and it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned to him. Same Hebrew word. The author is deliberately using wordplay here to say this. This is what he's saying. God relented of the evil he said he would do to Jonah after they turned from their evil, and to Jonah this was a great evil. So in other words, God's compassion for Nineveh was not just evil, but a great evil. And as a result, Jonah's angry. He is so angry. Jonah is so angry. We should not interpret this to be regular anger. So have, have uh, any of you, you know, ever experienced or witnessed a person just overcome, completely, utterly filled with fury? They're, they're mad, they're screaming, they're red all over, they're, they're throwing things across the room, they're looking for things to knock down, the people around them are really scared or they're really intense, they resume to this fight-or-flight mode. Have you guys ever witnessed that? I think that's Jonah. I think that's this kind of anger. Jonah is furious. He's burning. He's hot. He's red all over. This is actually the first time we see Jonah feel something in the story. It's the first emotion we see of Jonah, and it's intense. The first emotion we see of Jonah, Prophet Jonah, is furious, resentful anger. Jonah feels this way because he sees God's lack of justice by not destroying those wicked Ninevites as injustice. To Jonah, God is unjust for not showing just punishment. To Jonah, God not punishing evil is a great evil. To Jonah, this is really what it is, to Jonah, God is evil. So verse 1 hints why Jonah fled from God in his mission in chapter 1. In verse 2, it tells us. Verse 2 tells us. Verse 2 is the big reveal. Uh, we've been waiting for this whole time. We ask, Jonah, why did you flee from God at the beginning of the story? Jonah answers in this next verse, and I'll read it. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. And here it is. Here's the reason. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We now know the true reason for why Jonah fled at the very beginning of the story. Jonah knew that God would, in his words, relent from disaster. 
Why is this such a big deal to Jonah? Like, why is this such a big deal? When Jonah says, my country, we see that Jonah is concerned for his nation, Israel. And he knows that Assyria, which Nineveh is a, is a city in Assyria, and he knows that Assyria is Israel's greatest foreign threat. So here's some background. In 841 BC, Assyria invades Israel. Okay? 841 BC, Assyria invades Israel, and, and Assyria begins killing, imprisoning, and deporting Israelites to Assyria. This continues for over 100 years until in 722 BC, they finally take over Samaria. Samaria is the, is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, after King Solomon dies, Israel has the civil war, and then they split into two nations, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Uh, Assyria takes over Israel. Assyria was the most powerful and violent nation at the time. According to ancient sources, they would skin people alive. They took pride and built a reputation on torturing people. They built pyramids using human heads. You can imagine what they did to captured women and children. This is why Jonah feels the way he does about Nineveh. The story of Jonah, which is what we're going through now, takes place around 750 B.C. Israel falls in 722. So, if you do the math, 750, 722, if you do the math, Assyria takes over Israel within 30 years of the story we're reading. 30 years. You can disagree with Jonah's sinful posture, but can you at least relate to what he's feeling? Do you at least understand where Jonah's coming from? Jonah is praying here, right, in verses 2 and 3. And just like what he did in his chapter 2 prayer, Jonah again quotes scripture in his chapter 4 prayer. Did you all catch that, that he's quoting scripture? What's he quoting? We actually heard the biblical text Jonah is referencing during our scripture reading this morning from John Whipple. It's Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. So in Exodus 34, God renews his covenant with uh, Israel uh, after they violate, you know, the, the covenant. And just before the covenant renewal, God describes himself. God describes himself. So if you ever want to know more about God, from God, uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I also recommend you read the entire Bible. But uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 works too. What does this mean for Jonah? When Jonah references Exodus 34 and possibly prophet Joel, Joel's another prophet who probably lived before Jonah in the, in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. When Jonah references Exodus 34, God's natural and, uh, characteristics and attributes are Jonah's criticisms of God. When Joel references Exodus 34, he states it as a positive statement that glorifies God. That's Joel chapter 2 verse 13. When prophet Jonah says the exact same thing, he states it as a negative statement that criticizes God, which you just saw in verse 2. What's humorous is that prophet Joel is prophesying over Israel. You see, when you apply, to God, when you apply God to your people, grace and mercy are wonderful. So wonderful. When you apply God's grace and mercy to your enemies... His grace and mercy are terrible. They're so terrible. This really appeals to our, our own sense of fairness and justice, doesn't it? 
I mean, if you drive 15 miles over the speed limit and a cop pulls you over, what do you think? Oh, please, grace and mercy, right? When someone in traffic almost accidentally gets you into an accident and the cop pulls that person over, you drive by and you scream, justice, justice. We are so much, we are so much like prophet Jonah. So in chapters 1 to 3, the author hints that Jonah wants to die. In the next verse, there's another big reveal. You finally hear Jonah say it. Here's verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You know, those are pretty strong words. I think they're pretty strong words. God, please kill me because I'd rather be dead than be alive. A tendency as a lay reader could be to think, geez, Jonah, get over it. God is gracious and merciful. Just deal with it. But within the historical context I provided all of you earlier, I think, I think this is what he's really saying. Oh, Lord, I would rather die now than to be alive later and witness what will become of my country. This city of this country that you didn't destroy, Assyria, because you caused them to repent by your word, is going to kill all of us. These Assyrians are going to enslave, torture, and murder our men and our women and our children. So I, I, think, that's what, I think that's what Jonah's saying. Some of you might disagree with some of the things Jonah has been saying so far in the chapter and, you know, really throughout the whole book. But you might agree on how Jonah feels. You might be thinking, you know, it's understandable and even justified for Jonah to feel angry. In a situation like this, I'd be angry too. I would have the right to be angry. Hold that thought as we hear God's response in verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Well, do you? You really have to think through what God is asking before you can answer honestly. We will dig deeper into Jonah's anger later because it comes up again. Remember the first half of the big idea. We anger over God's lack of divine justice. I, have, I want to ask all of you this morning, is that, is that true for you right now? Is that true for you this morning? The world is filled with thieves, deceivers, attackers, murderers. The world is filled with people taken advantage of. Victims of sexual assault, loss of family members due to violence or, violence or something fatal? Do you always feel joyful knowing conceptually, doctrinally, intellectually that God is just? Or do you sometimes feel what Jonah feels? Furious, resentful, angered, knowing that God could allow such a thing to happen. Something that contradicts justice. Or to clarify, something that conflicts with your own sense of justice. We finish the first section of chapter 1 focusing on God's, or Jonah's anger. Now we look at the second half, verses 5 through 11, focusing on God's lesson 
for Jonah, this addresses the second half of our main idea, remember? When, when we anger over God's lack of divine justice, he teaches us about his divine compassion. So, God just asked Jonah a question. We now see Jonah's answer to God's question. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. That's his answer. Jonah doesn't answer God. Okay, to be fair, to be fair, I do believe God's question is rhetorical. I do believe his, his question is rhetorical, but Jonah still doesn't continue the conversation. And the, there's another reveal in this, in this verse. What we come to find out is that Jonah and God were having a conversation where? Inside the city. Jonah's still in the city. The city of Nineveh. Jonah is asking God to destroy him while he's in the city. I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining fire and brimstones from the skies. Jonah might be thinking, God didn't kill you, Nineveh, but he's going to kill me. And when I die, I'm taking all of you with me. And when Jonah realizes that God's not going to kill him, he leaves the city. And outside the city, Jonah still thinks and still hopes that God will destroy Nineveh. You're probably thinking, why does Jonah still think God is going to kill the Ninevites? It's very possible that Jonah misinterpreted God. So I argued that Jonah misinterpreted God back in chapter 3 with the word overthrown. I don't know if you guys remember that. Overthrown could mean different things. It's possible Jonah misinterpreted God here again by hearing. This is what he may, he may have heard. Do you do well to be angry even though I didn't finish the job? So that's the only reason I could find in the text to, to explain why Jonah still thinks this way. Jonah really wants God to kill the Ninevites. To Jonah, to Jonah, that's justice. In the next verse, we see God do something, but it's not destroy Nineveh. Here's verse 6. And the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This is the first time in the story where Jonah is happy. He isn't just happy, he's exceedingly happy. The words are great joy. Two reasons for this great joy. One's more obvious. One is his own comfort. So he's comfortable. So that's number one. Number two, the supernatural act was to Jonah a sign that God is comforting him and reassuring him that he was right to wait and watch the city. You know, the image I have is a, a child who really wants fireworks in his backyard. So at night, he tells his parents, I, wanted, I, want, to do, I want you guys to put up uh, fireworks in the backyard. And the parents say, no, we're not going to do that tonight. And the child says, but I really want you to do it. And the parent says, I don't think we're going to do that tonight. And the child gets furious. The child gets angry. He's burning. He's hot. And then at night, the, the parents take him outside, and they sit him on a lawn chair, and they give him some popcorn. So the child is thinking, ooh, ooh, I'm outside. And I'm on a lawn chair outside at night, and they gave me some popcorn. We're going to see some fireworks tonight. But the parents said no, and there are no fireworks. It's, if you pay attention to the narrative, the plant is the only thing in the entire story that makes Jonah happy. Jonah really likes this plant. He really hates Nineveh, 
but he really likes this plant. Scholars wonder through uh, countless hours of research and publications, what kind of plant is this? Is it a castor oil plant? Is it a gourd? Here it is, I figured it out. Here's the type of plant. The type of plant is irrelevant. What's relevant is that God appointed this plant. And when God appoints something, that means that God has given it purpose. Does that make sense? God appointed the plant, and now the plant has purpose. In Hebrew, the plant is called a kikayon. It's a plant. It's big. It's fast-growing. Some of you uh, might have a ton of kikayons growing in your backyard. Jonah is really happy about this plant. And here's why. Because he's only concerned over his own well-being. Remember, remember, this is an object lesson. God's teaching him a lesson. So, what is God trying to teach Jonah through the plant? Uh, God's trying to teach Jonah at least three things, and I'll tell you that God is trying to teach, what God is, what God is trying to teach Jonah, I think directly applies to what God is trying to teach us as well. Okay? God's teaching Jonah in the story, but you have to pay attention. I think God's trying to teach us something too here at Embassy in the 21st century in the United States. So pay attention. Here's, here's number one. The plant that God made is more sufficient than the shady booth that Jonah made. So do you, are you guys trying to like figure out the point here? What God provides for you is always going to be more sufficient than what you provide for yourself. That was lesson number one. Here's, here's the second purpose, second lesson. The plant is there to provide shade, right? The plant is there to provide shade. It's to cool off a hot, burning Jonah. Jonah's hot and angry, and it is God who allows him shade and joy. So what's the point? Jonah's joy came out of God's natural provision and not Jonah's material provision. Jonah's joy came out of God's natural provision and not Jonah's own material provision. And here's the last, the third and last. The plant is there too, and to quote the, the, the verse, to save him from his discomfort. It literally says, to save him from his evil. To save him from his evil. You see, God is not primarily interested in saving you from being uncomfortable. His primary interest is his own glory. And one way he glorifies himself is not saving you from your discomfort, but saving you from eternal damnation. To save you from hell. To save you from your sins. To save you from your evil. This plant is the only thing in the entire story that gives Jonah great joy. Jonah doesn't get joy from God. He doesn't get joy from God. He doesn't get joy from sinners repenting. He doesn't get joy from other people in his life. He doesn't get joy. He doesn't even get joy from his own life. The plant is the sole joy-giving thing to Jonah. In Hebrew, it's called a kikayon. What is this called in your own life? What do you call it in your own life? 
Do you call it your smartphone? What about the stuff in your smartphone? Social media, do you call it that? Endless videos? Pornography? Do you call it your money? Is it your, your finances, your bank account, your, uh, your investments, your job? What is this called in your life? God is using physical objects to teach him a spiritual lesson, and God uses physical objects to teach you a lesson, believers. God completes his lesson for, jo- or he completes his lesson for Jonah in the next two verses here, verses uh, 7 and 8. By the time you get to verses 7 and 8, you see that God does a lot of appointing in the story. In chapter 2, God appointed what? He appointed a great fish. Here, he appoints a plant, then appoints a worm to attack the plant, and then he appoints a wind. It seems kind of random, doesn't it? God is not appointing these things at random. It's not random. God appoints a worm. And you're thinking, a worm? Why did he appoint a worm? God appoints a worm because the worm symbolizes death in the grave. This matches well with what Jonah uh, uh, is continually saying. He keeps saying that he wants to die. So God chooses a worm as as a part of the lesson. God appoints a scorching east wind. Literally, it's an easterly cutting wind. Because Jonah is on the east side of the city, and the wind is cutting or biting through Jonah the same way that the worm is cutting and biting through the plant. Do you guys all see that? It could also mean scorching, as our ESV has it, and in which the hot wind reflects a hot, angry Jonah. So, do you see how nothing is uh, random here in Scripture? Everything is intentional. God's lesson here is intentional. God's trying to teach Jonah something. Um, In verses 7 and 8, Jonah says he wants to die again. You know, he said it earlier in verse 3. He says it again here. This time, it's a little different, and I'm going, to show, I'm going to share with you why it's a little different in two ways. Here's the first. Earlier, Jonah wanted to die due to the ongoing existence of Israel's enemies, Assyria, right? Now, Jonah wants to die because he's really, really uncomfortable. I can't help but feel bad for the man. In chapter 2, he's dying by water. In chapter 4, he's dying by fire, by heat. Secondly, the narrator literally says he asked himself to die. He asked himself to die. The implication here is that Jonah isn't talking to God anymore. He's talking to himself. I think this is a a, a sad moment in the story. God initiates another conversation in verse 9. Here's verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The author writes this in a way where Jonah comes off sounding like a child talking back to his parent. It's also funny how Jonah responds this way because as I argued before, I think God is asking a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions are not intended to seek the truth, but draw out the truth. Rhetorical questions are not intended to seek the truth, but are intended to draw out the truth. This is why God asks a lot of questions in the Bible. 
He, he knows the truth. He's, try, he's trying to draw out the truth for us. Rhetorical questions are effective because the asker and the askee, the person asking the question and the person being asked the question, have shared knowledge. That's why rhetorical questions are so effective. And believe it or not, one area of shared knowledge between God and Jonah is anger. Anger. See, you see, in one sense, Jonah's anger reflects God's anger over Nineveh's wickedness. You see that back in chapter 3, verse 9. There's a reference to God's anger over Nineveh. But at the same time, Jonah's anger also stands in contrast to God's anger. Why? Jonah doesn't believe that Nineveh's evil should be forgiven. God was trying to teach Jonah a lesson about his compassion, and Jonah misses it. He misses the point of the lesson. So, in verses 10 and 11, God explains what he's been trying to teach Jonah this whole time through the lesson. So here it is, and here it is for us. Verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? By sheer number of converts, this is the most successful revival and conversion event in all of human history, minus Jesus. Minus Jesus, no one has ever been as successful in converting such a large number of people in such a short amount of time. We have never seen this before uh, since. Again, minus Jesus. This is very impressive. This is extremely impressive. And Jonah should be pleased. But he's not pleased. Jonah's not pleased. And he has more compassion for a plant than for 120,000 repentant sinners. Due to the odd way the story ends, I actually spent several days meditating on the very last words of the book. I was trying to understand why the story ends this way. Look at the end of verse 11. And also much cattle? I was trying to understand why why it ends this way. The strict literal word order is, and cattle much? Why does it end like this? Why is God suddenly talking about cows? God is basically saying, this is what I think he's saying. This is what God is basically saying. What he's saying is this, Jonah, you seem to care a lot about plants and animals. I know in Nineveh you don't care about the men and the women and the fathers and the mothers and the children who don't know right from wrong. But Jonah, Nineveh has a lot of cows. You like cows. You like the plant. You probably like cows. Don't you want me to not destroy Nineveh? For the many cows and cattle, since you seem to have a lot of compassion for them? I think that's what God's saying. We saw Jonah's anger, we heard God's lesson, and now we have to understand God's lesson for us. Uh, We've received many lessons already, like I said, I sprinkled them throughout the message, but uh, we can best understand God's lesson for us through the lens of the narrative. Uh, we just finished together. So we just, we just finished the entire book of Jonah. And we witnessed so many major events in the story, didn't we? 
In a similar way, uh, in your own life, you have experienced many major life events that I believe echo aspects of this Jonah story that we just went through together. All of us at some point have been called by God to faith. All of us uh, believers have disobeyed God. All of us have been caught in a storm, been selfish, said that you fear and worship God, but your actions say otherwise. All of us have been swallowed up by something. Maybe it's something uh, out beyond our control. Maybe it's something we directly caused ourselves. All of us have prayed a disingenuous or self-delusional prayer, misapplied scripture, whether on purpose or through negligence. Do the bare minimum that God commands you to do. Get furious and angry when things don't go your way. We have all experienced major life events that question that question our perspective of God, Circ- experienced how we see the world for what it is and we see how terrible, uh, how terrible these circumstances are and how a righteous and just God could allow such evil and brokenness to exist. And all those major and significant, significant events in the story of your life culminate and conclude into this one question, a single question asked by God in verse 11. Shouldn't I have compassion? Shouldn't I have compassion? So how does Prophet Jonah respond? In verse 12. I see some of you looking at your Bibles. There is no verse 12. There's no verse 12. Jonah doesn't respond to God. And as a reader who just finished reading the story, you come to find out, just just as the author intended, you come to find out that God isn't asking Jonah. He's asking you. He's asking you as the reader. So what do you say, embassy? Shouldn't God have compassion for your enemies? The very enemies that are trying to kill you and your loved ones. We have to be careful how we answer this question, okay? So, and here's why. If you say yes, if you say yes, then what you are effectively doing is greenlighting God to allow wicked people to destroy everyone you love. And you have to trust that he will enact divine justice the way that he sees fit in his time. That is way easier said than done. That is way easier said than done. If you say no, if you say no, then you are effectively waging war against God because you're contradicting his very nature. God by nature is compassionate. You're deliberately opposing the very nature of God and if you oppose God, God is going to kill you. Some of you are thinking, John, what kind of ethical dilemma is this? This ethical dilemma sounds like a lose-lose situation. This ethical dilemma, in fact, we, we appear to be in the same ethical dilemma that the pagan sailors were put in by Jonah in chapter 1. Do you guys remember that? That ethical dilemma? 
Just like the author's point in Jonah 1, maybe that's God's point here in Jonah 4. Maybe, maybe while we're trying to answer this question, while we're trying to answer this question, which is inherently rhetorical, God answers this question for us. Around 750 BC, God asks this question, and over seven centuries later, God himself answers. And he answers with another story. He answers with another story. So here's the story. In this story, God sees the entire world and sees what Jonah sees in Nineveh. Wicked, violent, adulterous, murderous, unbelieving, idol-worshipping, amoral, and immoral evil creatures. We're all included. We're all included. And And God, in his pure unadulterated, perfect justice sees that the destruction of mankind is necessary. It's necessary. And so God destroys mankind. God destroys mankind. And I'm not talking about the Noah flood story. I'm talking about a story after the flood. And you're probably confused, but it's because there's a twist. He destroys all of mankind, and he does. He does destroy all of mankind represented in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. God came down into this broken world as a man, and this man, Jesus, God in the flesh, put upon himself the sins of the world, our sins, my sins. And although he didn't do anything wrong, although he didn't do anything wrong, although he did not commit sin, even though he was sinless, Jesus voluntarily, self-sacrificially became sin and died a terrible death in our place. His wounds paid our ransom. God the Father destroyed mankind by destroying mankind's representative, our substitute, his beloved son on the cross. And in that moment, In that moment, God demonstrated divine justice upon the world while he simultaneously demonstrated divine compassion upon the world. God successfully executes wrath and judgment, and yet we are still alive today. We are still alive today, believers. So that's great. That's the end of the story. We're alive, and Jesus died for us, and he's dead. No, no, that's not the end of the story. Here's the good news. Here's here's what makes it the good news. Here's what makes it the gospel story. Jesus, in the greatest moment of triumph in all of human history, does what Jonah did at the end of chapter 2. He comes back to life. The key difference, though, is that unlike Jonah, Jesus raised himself up from the dead by his own power. After bearing the wit of of man's sins, and he single-handedly conquers death. And that's still not the end of this gospel story. Jesus ascends into heaven, sends the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, down to dwell and live within us. And if you believe, if you believe everything I'm saying this morning, it is only because the Holy Spirit is living out your sanctifying life. The Holy Spirit gives you ears to hear and eyes to see. If you're paying attention, it's by the Holy Spirit. It is by the Holy Spirit that you live within the conclusion of the gospel story and not in the conclusion of the Jonah story. Embassy. Are some of you still living in the conclusion 
of the Jonah story? Are you living in anger? Are you living in resentment, bitterness? Is it possible, is it possible that God is appointing hot, burning circumstances in your life to show you the hot, burning attitude of your heart? Are you living in self-destruction, selfishness, hatred, or negative, negative feelings towards people? Or, or are you living within the kingdom of God here on earth, living in faith, living in hope, living in love? Are you living in grace and mercy, justice and compassion? Are you living in the conclusion of the gospel story that will reach the full conclusion when Jesus Christ returns? This morning, which conclusion of which story are you living in right now? Um, I would like to conclude with this final thought. I want, I want you all to think of uh, one person in your life. Just think of one person in your life with whom you refuse your grace. This one person in your life who's still alive, yet dead to you. You see that this person doesn't deserve your mercy. This person doesn't deserve it. So here's the thought. If God has compassion for his enemies, which were all of us, shouldn't you have compassion for yours? If God has compassion for his enemies, shouldn't you have compassion for yours? You know, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Even more amazing than living in a fish for three days and three nights to live day in and day out within the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who feel unloved uh, this morning, for those who feel like people have treated you with very little sympathy, treated you with little to no compassion, for those who feel like you're being attacked, just like the plant by the worm in the story, know that Jesus really does love you, that Jesus really does love you, and he's quick to move you uh, within his compassion, to move you with his compassion, and in doing so, enables you to show compassion to other people in your life. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit through you. The question that God asks at the end of the Jonah story sounds very similar to a question that we're going to sing together at the end of the service. Um, we're going to sing together at the end of our service. This question is says very similar, and I encourage you to prepare your hearts for it, and I'll just read you the last stanza of the song we're going to sing. Why should I gain from his reward? Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. So please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to live in your kingdom here on earth, living in the conclusion of the gospel story that we continue to be a part of. Um, we ask, Lord, that we ask for your grace. We don't deserve your grace, but we need it. We don't deserve your mercy, but we need it. We don't deserve your compassion, but we need it. 
And I, we ask those things from you, Lord. Take pity on us and flood us with your grace and mercy and compassion. And for those who have received those things this morning, I pray that they realize that they have it, that they realize that you show your grace and mercy and compassion upon them every single day. I pray that they know that and they feel that and they feel the love that you have for them. So I pray that these things through the power of the Holy Spirit empower us to show grace and mercy and compassion to our enemies in our lives. We love you so much. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.